Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. Uh, today we're going to talk about climate resilience and how all of us can rally. Uh, this week, numerous farm organizations went to Washington, D.C. with a simple message. If we want a better world, it starts with us. Farmers know this. They have the tools and the know-how to make our climate future better. But they cannot do it alone. Policymakers, all of us, need to support the solutions they can deliver. And that was a quote from John Mellencamp, um, singer John Mellencamp, who spoke this week. Um, joining us right now is Michael um, Happ at IATP. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Michael. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So tell us about this event you just came back with that quote from John Mellencamp. Yeah, so uh, I just... Uh, Got back from Washington, D.C. Uh, from the Rally for Resilience, uh, which happened a couple days ago. Um, it was a, a rally in March led by uh, farmer leaders from across the country. Um, and they were really asking for climate change to be prioritized in the Farm Bill this year. For those uh, listening who don't know, the Farm Bill uh, is, is one of the biggest pieces of legislation uh, that Congress deals with. It happens every five years and, you know, it helps uh, provide funding for, you know, farmers to do good conservation practices on their land. Uh, it includes um, a lot of uh, nutrition funding, right, helping make sure that people don't go hungry um, and things like that. And there, there are just a, a lot of um, safety net issues in there for farmers. Um, and climate change just makes makes a lot of the issues that farmers face um, that much that much harder. So, um, really asking for Congress to prioritize climate change this year. Okay, so I want to step back and hear, learn a little bit about yourself and what I, I know we've had IATP on um, several times over the years, but tell our audience again, what is IATP and your personal background? Yeah, so um, so my name is Michael Happ. I am the Program Associate for Climate and Rural Communities at IATP, and IATP stands for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We were founded in the 80s in the wake of the farm crisis, uh, and it was really... The, the original mission of our organization uh, was to take a look at um, the economic struggles of American farmers and comparing them with the struggles that farmers across the globe face, right? And how trade agreements and how federal policy uh, impacts um, those farmers and making sure that small and mid-sized farmers um, get a fair shake. And you know, over the past couple of decades, we've really focused on climate change, again, as one of those, um, one of those things that makes all of those other problems even worse. So uh, later in the show, I'm going to talk with a, a far, the farmer from Blue Dirt Farm, um, Scott Hayes. And he was he just posted something on LinkedIn, and we're also doing this LinkedIn Live now, but um, about the problem with insects right now. I mean, we're losing uh, one in five insects are endangered. And, and the, it, it, it's such a – there's, there's climate change, there's water quality, there's soil quality. There are so many – ecological issues right now. And yet when the farmer is doing things and, and the farmer can do these wonderful things that they enjoy doing, but then the economics isn't quite there. So you want to just explain a little bit about, um, one, the agriculture and how agriculture affects our ecology, and two, how farmers um, are kind of not facing an even field if they choose to farm in a way that's friendly to water and insects. Yeah, yeah, it's a absolutely. big question. That's, I know it's a big question, and it's something we we grapple with a lot. Um, yeah, so I think in the current economic environment, a lot of farmers feel 
that they need to you know farm every single square inch of their land right they're locked into these contracts with um, pesticide and herbicide dealers um, with with seed seed corn companies and things like that uh, and and once you're locked into that system it's really hard to get out um, so if you've got a, a, a plot of land right next to a creek uh, there's a lot of pressure to go right up right up against that creek border um, and and I know that for folks who want to transition to for example an organic system we're talking about a three to five year um, period of time where you can't get the the premium prices of organic uh, you're getting the same price as um, as conventional grown um, crops uh, but you're you're also um, you're also dealing with a lot more weed pressure for example and there are, there are lots of um, techniques to, to handle weeds and to handle pests and things like that that don't require uh, these expensive inputs um, but it, but but they're expensive on the on the um, front end as well so one thing that we advocate for is is helping farmers um, afford some of those things using federal conservation programs um, to help farmers transition to more agroecological models um, yeah there there are a lot of a lot of issues with with nitrate pollution and with um, with with livestock uh, concentrated livestock pollution as well affecting water quality um, and, you know trying to make sure that far, uh, farmers can transition to a pasture-based livestock system as well um, there are lots of <laughs> we, we could really unpack this a lot um, well let's but, let's just briefly unpack it because people I mean uh, so I know you and, and people can read the full report uh, by going to IATP.org but you have a report out um, uh, why uh, it's called uh, still closed out so talk about that report that that, that people can read the um, entire report if they're interested in yeah able. so uh, this report still closed out uh, it's an update to an earlier report that we did a couple years ago and it was focusing on two federal programs um, administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. One is called the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and one is called the Conservation Stewardship Program. And essentially what these programs do, um, they work really closely together. And if you're a farmer um, and you look out into your field and you see, uh, okay, there's this path where water tends to, to run through when there are heavy rains and it's eroding a lot of my soil, and you decide, hey, it might be a good idea to plant a grassed waterway there. That's something that the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, otherwise known as EQIP, um, can help pay for. And then if the farmer puts in that grassed waterway and sees a lot of benefits there and wants to you know, put in more conservation practices that can you know, help with water quality, help keep the soil in place, um, it can graduate up to the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP. And then you can you know, put in lots of other things like a riparian buffer, kind of a buffer between your field and your stream. Uh, you can put in continuous living cover, making sure there are living roots in the soil uh, so the soil is better able to absorb water and heavy rainfall events. Um, and these sorts of things can also help with, um, with drought conditions. So we took a look at these programs, which are really, really popular with farmers. There's a line heading out the door for farmers to sign up for these programs. But as it exists right now, there's just not enough money uh, to be spread around um, for farmers to enroll in these programs, right? Uh, the, the main takeaway finding was uh, nationwide, about three in four farmers who applied for these programs last year were turned away. And in Minnesota, which has given more CSP contracts than any other state over the course of uh, the history of the program, only 8% of farmers 
uh, who applied were able to access these programs. And again, it provides financial help um, to get farmers to, to do better conservation uh, practices and can help um, reduce input costs. Like, you know, my brother is a farmer and he has a conservation stewardship program contract and it's helped him kind of work on crop rotations and, and what are ways in which we can farm that require less uh, nitrogen fertilizer, for example. And that's really financially beneficial for a lot of farmers uh, as well as for the environment. So let's talk about the benefits um, to the whole ecosystem from these type of conservation programs. Um, so obviously, um, they'd also would help insects, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know there are um, practices in there um, regarding pest management um, and, and you know, helping farmers have a variety of um, crops out in the field, uh, right? There, there are some crops that are more susceptible to pests and insects and, and different types of funguses on given years. Um, and having lots of different crops that you're growing as well as you know, perhaps livestock, having more um, options can make you more resilient to um, pest infest infestation. Um, so that's definitely something that IATP advocates for is, is helping farmers uh, move over to more diversified systems because that's kind of the original crop insurance, right? If it's a bad year for corn, we have these five other crops that we're growing um, that help us um, help us make ends meet at the end of the day. Um, so, um, so, uh, but only 8% of the farmers that apply for this received these conservation um, uh, grants. So tell us a little bit, bit more, because that's, I mean, that seems sort of really disappointing. I mean, you're doing all this work to fill out this, and you want to do the right thing, and you, you need these benefits, and then you don't, you know, you have a 1 in 10, less than a 1 in 10 chance of getting these grants. How do they work on the ground? Um, can you give me some ideas of how much money it might be worth, and, and, mm -hmm. and what's the checks and balances, and... and um, uh, t t tell me more about the CSP or the EQIP. Yeah, absolutely. So it depends on what kind of practice you're looking at uh, enrolling in, right? If you're looking at just planting some cover crops, cover crop seed is not uh, particularly expensive. So it'll help, you know, there might be a flat rate um, where you buy the cover crop seed first and then you um, go over to USDA and they can reimburse you. Um, if you are a lower capital farmer, um, there are options for uh, getting that payment up front so you don't have to pay out of pocket and then wait to be reimbursed because I know that's a, a big struggle for some farmers. Um, one thing that we have taken a deeper look at, and there's, there's another report we put out called Payments for Pollution. Um, not every practice these programs pay for are um, environmentally beneficial. Uh, over 30% of EQIP funds go toward um, more industrial scale um, ag practices, things like manure lagoons, things like um, waste separation facilities, um, things that really only make sense for large scale operations and um, what lots of people might consider to be factory farms. Um, and those are really expensive. That could be up to like $100,000 a contract um, for just one single practice. So one thing we've been saying is cover crops cost less than concrete, uh, and we need to reallocate some of the money that's going toward these more polluting practices uh, to the majority of the practices that um, that are actually environmentally beneficial. Because this is public; these are taxpayer dollars, um, and if if taxpayer dollars are going toward environmental programs, we want to make sure they're actually environmentally beneficial. 
and then CSP, because it's a more comprehensive whole farm program, those contracts can be, um, you know, again, more comprehensive. You could get a $100,000 contract there, but that's for, you know, doing all sorts of things across the whole farm. And it's not necessarily um, for that one lagoon, for example. So in your uh, report, closed out how U.S. farmers are denied access to conservation programs. Um, so you have an update to that 2021 report. So how did the uh, Biden's Inflation uh, Reduction Act um, impact this funding? Yeah, so um, this report actually doesn't show the IRA funding just yet. They are starting to roll that out now, uh, and they have announcements out for farmers who want to apply to these programs. Say, hey, we have all this new Inflation Reduction Act money. We'd love for you to sign up for these, uh, what USDA calls climate smart practices. Um, but even there, there are, are some glimmers of hope um, in the, the updated numbers, right? Um, between 2020 and 2021, we saw a downward trend of, um, of farmers being accepted into these programs. But between 2021 and 2022, the first full year, the Biden administration, we actually saw the numbers go up. And, you know, I, I want to give them credit. They they have valued these two programs. They It, it seems like they want to make sure these programs work for farmers uh, and they're, they're doing um, the best that they can. And again, we're just highlighting the ways these programs could be improved, making sure the money's not going toward um, some of these more harmful practices and are being diverted instead more to the agroecological practices, the ones that, you know, help help farmers adapt to climate change. Adapt to climate change. And um, so uh, one of the ways to help the soil hold carbon um, is to have a cover on it um, year round. Um, but less than 7% of farms do that right now. Do I, or 5% of farms in Minnesota. Do I understand that? So this whole idea of cover cropping and year round cover is, is, um, is really important for a sustainable, resilient, climate smart or client, climate real um, world. Yeah, and there are a lot smarter people than I am who are measuring you know, how much carbon is sequestered um, by things like cover crops. What I wanna um, focus on and what I'm able to with you know, my skills is just showing that these, um, these practices are more climate resilient, that farmers can bounce back from extreme weather um, quicker. Right, there was a, a recent study out um, by researchers at the University of Illinois and the University of Missouri, uh, and they looked at um, folks listening might remember the the big floods we had in 2019. Right, Southwest Minnesota, Eastern South Dakota, uh, all across the Upper Midwest um, had these torrential um, rainfalls in the spring that prevented people from getting in the field and, and planting. Um, but they uh, these researchers took a look at you know farms that had cover crops and farms that didn't and the farms that had cover crops those fields were better able to absorb the rain um, and those folks were able to get into the field um, quicker than the folks who just had bare soil um, so again you know it's, it's not universal every farm is different uh, we want to make sure that these programs are flexible um, for the needs of every particular farm because you might have different four different types of soil on one 40-acre plot, um, but it, you know a lot of farmers have seen a lot of good things from their cover crops, and and that in my mind is is an example of climate resilience. 
Right, but it's it's only seven percent. So how do we up that up? And that that's what this um, this climate rally for farmers and um, that's what your work is about. Is how do how do we create that? How do we make that the norm? How do we make cover cropping the norm? Uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to be back. We're going to talk more and we're going to talk also about the uh, the rally that happened. Um, uh, this week, and we're going to go out listening to some uh, John Mellencamp music. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and joining us is um, is Michael um, Happ from IATP. And the little insects, too. And the butterflies. Yeah, and then all those little micros in the soil. <laughs> Oh, little pink houses. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, joining me by phone is uh, Michael Hopp from the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. And uh, Michael, we listened a little bit to John Mellencamp. So you were at an event, and you actually listened to John Mellencamp just days ago. So tell us again about um, that event and um, how it felt and what you guys were doing. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I was at the Rally for Resilience in Washington, D.C. a couple of days ago, and that was um, co-hosted by a, a whole uh, bunch of different food and farm organizations, including uh, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, uh, Farm Aid, which John Mellencamp helped found in the 80s uh, in the midst of the farm crisis. With uh, Willie Nelson, like the, of course. With Willie Nelson and, uh, and Neil Young, exactly, um, uh, along with... Um, and the Heal Food Alliance and the Rural Coalition and, um, and the Union of Concerned Scientists among lots of other folks. Um, so I guess the main takeaway um, from that was we had you know, lots of really great farmer speakers um, and, and farmers emphasizing that, you know, farmers for the most part know what to do, right? They, they're the folks closest to the land. They see these extreme weather events come in um, and especially folks on on marginal land, on um, you know folks in the desert southwest, people in floodplains, things like that, they see these effects, and they um, they've been trying to adapt their farms um, to these extreme weather events, and it's getting harder and harder every year. Um, and they they've been relying on their own community and their own families, you know the, the other folks who are helping them run their farms, um, but more and more it's just not enough, right? So, so they went to Washington to ask Congress to say, hey, this, this year we're talking about a farm bill. It needs to be a climate farm bill because if we don't do something about climate change, even more of our family farms are going to go uh, out of business or underwater figuratively or literally. Um, so, so again, um, yeah, there were, there were some really great speakers. Uh, there were some farm workers talking about you know, the extreme heat that they have to deal with when they're out in the field um, and all the kind of layers that they have to put on to protect themselves from um, the same plants that they're harvesting, um, exposure to pesticides, as well as, you know, summers that are getting hotter and hotter. Um, there was a speaker who was a farmer in the desert southwest in, an, in a part of Arizona that only gets about four inches of rainfall every year. And he talked about uh, some of the practices he's putting in on his land uh, that keeps moisture in the soil, including things like continuous living cover, um, grazing sheep, and, and all, all these things, right? Things that a lot of people who, who have lived here, for example, for thousands of years, they learned how to do. They learned how to adapt their food and, and the things they're growing 
to the land um, and make sure it reflected nature. And again, with a changing climate, it's it's harder and harder to do things like that. But this is something that no one can do alone. So part of it is how we work together as a community, right, to um, uh, change from um, to, to continuous living crop, just have that be continuous, to have that be extremely popular. Um, so one of the uh, key asks is to have farmer-led climate solutions. So what are some of the farmer-led climate solutions? Yeah, absolutely. Um so again, as I mentioned, I think farmers, um, when they see these extreme weather events come in and they see the fact that, you know, barren soil is not able to absorb rainfall, for example, or in drought years, uh, that barren soil is dried out and it's hard to, to plant things in there, right? Keeping, keeping living roots in there, um, that's definitely a, a farmer-led solution, but it, it, it varies from place to place, right? And there's just this reality that um, the farmers on the ground are going to know best um, what to do with their land. Uh, and it's just, you know, bringing them to the table and making sure they're, uh, they have a hand in, in crafting policy and to make sure that it's that all types of farmers are being represented. Right. I think in America, we have this, this one particular vision of what a farmer is, which is important. Um, but we, we have urban farmers, we have, you know, black farmers who, who have been, just abused by the system for so long. There, there used to be over a million black farmers in the United States, and today that number is down to 50,000. Um, so making sure that black farmers are at the table, that native farmers are at the table, that all farmers of color are at the table, and, and, and including, right, making sure we're reflecting the future of agriculture. Um, you know, fo folks who are oftentimes growing food on, on less than a quarter acre of land. Um, so again, just making sure the farm bill understands that and recognizes that uh, is hugely important. So racial justice in the farm bill, and there's also another um, farm bill called Justice for Black Farmers. So can you talk a little bit more about yeah, um, some of the specifics um, um, when it comes to the farm bill and racial justice? Yeah, absolutely. And again, there are going to be a lot more people who, who can speak more eloquently on this than I can. Um, but just the, the short of it is, you know, farmers of color are oftentimes closed out of um, capital and credit, um, right? In, in a lot of cases, in order to access money, you have to have money to begin with, whether that's, you know, access to land, access to crop insurance. Those are two huge um, pieces of collateral that the banks will look at um, when they're deciding whether or not to give you a loan. Add on top of that, right? Black farmers in particular have faced decades of discrimination by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, there have been lawsuits about this there, and, and studies just showing that people going into um, a local USDA office looking for a loan um, are going to just the same, same type of operation, same farm size. Um, the black farmer is going gonna, is gonna to be mistreated nine times out of ten, right? people um, not knowing about deadlines, just local folks not being able to, um, being willing to help them out. Um, so there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. Uh, and um, IATP, we support the Justice for Black Farmers Act uh, that was introduced by um, Senator Booker. Um, and I, I think a lot of the, the provisions of that bill um, 
should be incorporated into the farm bill and just make sure making sure that everyone has access to land and uh, access to credit um, and that we're not intentionally or unintentionally closing people out that way. Another one of the key asks ask from this is sustainableagriculture.net is where I got this information uh, about the Farmers for Climate Action rally that happened this last week. But uh, one of the, the other key asks is communities, not corporations. What does that mean, communities, not corporations? Yeah, so it means a lot of things, but uh, just taking a look at a, a couple examples, um, IATP supports uh, community, local, and regional food systems, right? Um, farmers being able to interact directly uh, at farmers markets, sell their food directly to, to schools and hospitals in their local communities, making sure that um, the food that's grown locally uh, can be shared locally, and that a lot of the, the income from that and the, the wealth stays in the community, right? Um, a lot of the depletion of rural communities we've seen as been at the hands of corporations, right? Corporations who come in and, and consolidate, um, right? We have four major um, beef meat packers right now, closing out a lot of um, some of those small local butchers um, that people used to take their, you know, right? If you have a cow that you're, you, um, you wanna process, you used to be able to take it to your local butcher um, or local processor. And in a lot of cases, they're just not able to compete um, with the JBSs of the of the, of the world. Um, so that's one thing that um, we want to make sure um, is addressed is consolidation and competition um, in the food sector. And, you know, you see that that's problem. A point in, of, that can be a point of real unity across all sorts of, um, uh, just a point of uh, the, the concentration. Um, I don't, dandelions are fine, but I just don't plant them in my personal yard. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I, we, we need to move into the, the natural diversity. And, and so this, this concentration, um, talk, I mean, it's, talk about all the consequences to our egg system from a highly concentrated system, which is what the system is right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, when you have only a handful of um, large corporations you can buy seeds from, um, that dictates what you can plant uh, in the soil, right? I think most farmers, if, if starting from square one, they would wanna plant lots of different things, um, right? And if you're growing oats and barley and wheat and corn and soybeans, you're gonna have different types of equipment and things that are scaled right to your farm. And if you had a choice, you would want to go just down the road uh, to buy some of the implements for that and sell your grain locally, right? Whether it's to a local elevator or, you know, some sort of local mill, things like that. Um, but when these large corporations are able to control the prices and um, artificially um, lower prices, they're, they're squeezing out some of those local um, processors and mills and, uh, and things like that out of business and they, they just can't compete. Uh, so that farmers and consumers are left with fewer choices. Um, and, and we're seeing a resurgence in, in some respects of, of this local food movement of people wanting to buy locally and you know, knowing that the, the wheat that their flour, um, the wheat that made their flour came from just down the road, that's, that's something that people want, want to buy and they'll re, you know, people are willing to pay a premium for that. Um, so making that a more economically viable option um, and, and dealing with the consolidation and competition issues, um, I think is huge um, from, from my ATP's standpoint. 
And uh, so we want to talk, uh, we've got about three minutes left, and just a brief uh, outline of what the policy solutions are that uh, is needed. So one of the big policy solutions is to double the farm bill spending on conservation. Um, so how would that work? Yeah, so I just want to reiterate there, um, there are lots of farmers who are applying for federal conservation programs that are being closed out, right? In Minnesota, 8% of farmers being connected who apply or being connected with these contracts is just not acceptable. And we need just a huge influx of, of funding to meet that demand. Um, we, also, we also wanna make sure, right, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year, it has a considerable investment in these programs uh, with a focus on climate. And I think that's a good thing. And, and there are conversations in Washington right now about trying to take that money away and use it for other programs within the Farm Bill. And we wanna just make sure uh, that they know that that's not acceptable, right? That money should be used for conservation. It should be used in a way that makes sure that that funding is stable and is here for years to come uh, so we can actually address the climate crisis. And we signed on to a letter uh, with almost 650 other organizations in the food, farm, uh, conservation and envi environment fields saying, hey, don't don't use this for anything other than conservation. It was passed for a reason. This is transformational funding. Uh, it's not everything we need, right? But it's a step in the right direction and can help a whole lot of farmers access these um, these funds for conservation and climate. Yeah, because um, and, and, and these are, uh, this helps everybody. And I mean, it, 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 the conservation program and, and, and adapting to um, ways of growing food that uh, takes the environment into account is, is just the key to, uh, some people use the phrase climate smart, but resilience and viability and livability. Yeah, and that's another thing we want to emphasize, right? The Farm Bill isn't just for farmers. It's for eaters as well everyone is impacted by the farm bill, whether they know it or not. Um, and making sure that it's a, it's a farm bill that reflects uh, what humans in the United States need and across the globe, right? People and and if people could simplify it into a poll question, now, would you want a farming system that uh, destroys topsoil, adds nitrates to the water forever, um, and doesn't really pay farmers a livable wage, and kills all the insects? Would you want that farming system? Or would you want a farming system that's good for pollinators and good for soil and operates for clean water? I think I think we would all vote for the latter system. So um, I thank you so much, uh, Michael Happ, with, uh, uh, with IATP. That's IATP.org. And you can check out the, um, the 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 all of his writing there, and you have a. Um, we'll be right back with uh, with a farmer from Blue Dirt Farm. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is Scott Hayes. Um, he's a farmer at Blue Dirt Farms. He's also a board member of the Sustainable Farming Association. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Scott. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thank you. Well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I'm a sixth generation, generation, if I can talk, generation farmer uh, in Blue Earth, Minnesota. It's really uh, the, the main business I have right now. Uh, I started uh, moving uh, when I started out, I moved back and joined up with the family farm, and that's still the the bulk of what I'm doing. I've also uh, started a smaller 
farm entity called Blue Dirt Farm that focuses on regenerative agriculture and selling uh, meat products mostly directly to consumers. And that has been a really challenging and exciting thing over the last uh, five years or so. Actually, a little longer than that. And so you're also a board member of the uh, Sustainable Farming Association, which is holding this week the Midwest Soil Health Summit. So tell us about what's Correct. going on with them and what this um, Midwest Soil Health Summit is. Um, that was uh, really a catalyst for me back in oh, around 2015, I think it was, uh, is when I started getting involved with the Sustainable Farming Association. They were looking for farms to do uh, post a research and demonstration prod project involving cover crops and grazing integrated into the farm's existing uh, enterprises. So my family's farm at the time, like it still is almost entirely today corn and soybean based. So we interceded cover crops into the, uh, the corn field and then lined up, uh, made an arrangement with a cattle rancher to have it grazed in the fall and a lot of this stuff like i said i uh, sfa was a catalyst for that i went to the soil health summit that year that's how i found out about this project and being involved with that and some of the help i've gotten from people in sfa like kent solberg has sent me just set, set me years ahead of where i would have been otherwise getting the education and technical advice you can talk about technical service from like a farm service agency uh nrcs kind of thing but when you meet with somebody who's you know down in the down in the dirt literally every day uh it's it's those little details that matter like how to set your planter what you know what kind of species you put in a cover crop mix when you plant it timing is so critical so, so oh, that's, yeah, a while ago on LinkedIn, and because I, 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 this is mm-hmm. kind of why I reached out or I saw this, but a, a while ago on LinkedIn, you reposted an article about the collapse of insects, and this was an article done from Reuters, and we're losing two percent of insects on the planet every year, which is a catastrophe. Um, one in five insects um, are now threatened. Um, our food system is dependent on insects. Um, uh, the birds and the the, the um, birds and fish and a whole variety of non-human life forms that we don't really realize are dependent on these insects. Now, why did you repost that article? Well, I had my own <laughs> selfish motivations. Cool. I have a a bin full of uh, some non-GMO corn that I grew, and I was able to source the seed without uh, any type of seed treatment, including the controversial uh, neonicotinoid seed treatment. But I, I just believe that anything – I was interested in the article, so I, I read it before I reposted it. <laughs> Probably a good practice. Uh I think anything like that, like insects or any life that you can see, it's really the tip of the iceberg and an indicator of what's going on at the the lower trophic levels, like down in the soil. I think if we see a lot of birds and insect life, uh, it's a great indication that our microbial health of our soil is good. And Conversely, if we see a decline in the insects, we... That's alarming. We know something's probably wrong, and there could be a lot of causes to that. And 
that's that's the way nature works. Nothing uh there's there aren't single causes and effects. Everything is tied together. So any change you make on your farm especially or you know, other areas of our our civilization as well, but I, right. I know as a farmer, any change I make on my farm that uh change gets there's feedback and it gets shows up in a lot of different ways and hard to predict. Yeah, so you put out there. Does anyone have any leads on who might want to purchase this grow, uh, this mm-hmm. corn grown without insect insecticides? And and you said in some ways that was selfish, but actually, I I believe that one of the most selfish things to be in this world is to be selflessness. It's almost like it comes full circle, and you open up this wonderful way um, of this this door of abundance that I think is our birthright. But we're not quite living it right now for all sorts of reasons mm-hmm. that um, you know it's, it's very complex, but. Did you get any response when you when you put that out there? Um, were you able to sell that corn? Uh, not yet, and that's just going to be a matter of getting on the phone and making the calls. I think, unfortunately, it's it's rare that somebody. I find this with my my uh, meat business too. Um, it takes a long time to get that flywheel turning, but when it does, then you become known, and it just uh, gets easier over time to sell products no matter what those products are and i think that article just kind of i learned from it and hopefully it just put you know repeating those messages just gets the the word out there that we should be thinking a little more about these details yeah and i've i've heard um a, a lot of presentations recently and um you know so Cover cropping um, is a wonderful solution for um, clean water. Um, if we, when we do, cover cropping helps uh, prevent nitrates in the water, it helps with climate change. It's such a wonderful thing to do, and yet it creates soil aggregates. Yeah, I think that's the biggest part that gets overlooked. So, what do you mean uh, by that? Uh, so, you can think. I, example I love to use is think of uh, pouring water into a bowl of pudding. That's going to make a mess. It splatters all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then compare that with pouring water into a bowl of something like jelly beans. Mm -hmm. Um, The jelly beans are like those soil aggregates. And what makes them into those little jelly bean-like packets, of course, they're all varying sizes and whatnot, but it's the biological glues. And if we're not feeding the biology in that soil with the root exudates from cover crops, if there's only a couple plant species that are dominating the landscape, we don't get those root exudates, so we're not feeding the soil biology, and we have a really hard time forming those aggregates then and maintaining them. And there might be something about human health connected to the health of the soil as well, as David mm-hmm. Montgomery, the author of the book, What, what Your Food Ate, um, so, I mean, <laughs> um, uh, states. So there's this – so so we have – there's there seems to be like an abundance of well-qualified, wonderful information out there about why we need to have cover cropping, why we need to have regenerative agricultural systems. And then there seems to be this big market gap which is what you personally found. Um, how do you sell this corn? How do you, you know, how, how do you get in this? So describe that. Am, am I right in this observation that there is a um, a, a key gap? Yeah, I, I think there is, at least to a, a large degree. Um, 
when you're doing something different like that, uh, you know, I could just go sell my corn to the commodity market and take whatever price they're they're paying that day. But I'd I'd love to be able to go out and get a little more to you know make it worth my while because it's like like any practice where you're doing something. You know, you believe you truly believe it's better. You're doing the right thing, but it's going to be more work because that's not the way the the system is built up. To uh, we're kind of swimming upstream, and there is definitely a gap that should be addressed in better ways. Yeah, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes communication. So, how can people um, support you and farmers like you? Oh, that is a a great question. <laughs> um, again, because of this gap, it's not always going to be the easiest thing. Uh, the good news is, is I believe it's getting a lot easier because we're having, you know, farmers have their their websites. Uh, we're hopefully starting to see some more transparency, or at least some of the tools necessary for better transparency in our food system are. Um, yeah, being born or reaching their maturity. So, well, and I suppose know, supporting, about- like you said, the organizations that support you guys, like the Land Stewardship mm. Project and Sustainable Farming Association and the co-ops, and you know, we kind of move forward with all their decisions. So, um, and I, I love, I love what your um, on, on your website on the LinkedIn thing. Um, you see your job as harnessing nature's wisdom and power in ways that serve people while restoring the diversity, abundance, and synergy to degraded ecosystems. So, yay! Yes. So is there anything else? I put else? a lot of thought <laughs> into those ideas. <laughs> anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I think that, that sums it up beautifully. That's really what I'm striving for as a farmer. I want to address that human health aspect, and I I believe there's more tools that are going to become available to both me as a farmer and customers as well that will help to, you know, shine a light into that area um yeah right now though you asked again about what customers can do i think the best thing anyone can do for themselves and for their family and to serve their community around them is uh, just take a long hard look at how you're living your life and ask you know how can you better support your your life and your energy and it only pays off in so many ways to yourself and to your friends and family. So, yeah. Um, well, we're, that. Oh, well, that's fantastic. So, uh, Scott Hayes, uh, you're a farmer at Hayes Family Farms, Blue Dirt Farms. You want to do your website? Uh, sure. It's bluedirtfarm.com. Bluedirtfarm.com. Or, I have a lot of Mongolitsa pork available mm-hmm. on there, as well as a little bit of beef that I've focused on the pork up till now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. And uh, thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. And have a great week. Thank you, Laura. Thank you.